Gamma Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal. Coming to you today with the pleasure of speaking with Lauren Maggio, who's a professor of medicine and health professions education at Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences towards the eastern side of the United States. There, she's also associate director for research at the Center for Health Professional Education. And the paper that we'll be discussing is coming out in the March 2023 issue of Medical Education, the title being The Voices of Medical Education Scholarship, Describing the Published Landscape. Lauren, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. I'm so happy to have the opportunity to see and speak with you. Great. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to see you, too. And thank you for this opportunity to talk about this paper, which has been a labor of love. We worked on this paper for a long time, so we are really excited to see it in March. <laughs> And I want to give a big thanks to my research team as well. As you know, we don't do medical education research in isolation. There's always a team that we're working with. I want to acknowledge Joe Costello, Anton Ninkov, Jason Frank, and Tony Artino, who have, have been alongside me throughout this research program. Awesome. Yeah, an impressive team. And in some ways, what you've just said really fits into the focus of this work or your greater research program is trying to understand how we get research done and what we do and you know, all the things that go along with that. So let me just start by asking you, I know you have a particular interest in meta research, but that's a term that many people probably haven't heard. So can you explain to people what that is and why you think it's valuable? Sure. The way I think about meta-research is it's research on research. So we're using our research skills to better understand how research is created, used, and disseminated. We want to understand that broadly. And I think that's really important as we continue to grow as a field and we really have this large corpus of literature, of scholarly products out there, because that actually says a lot about us as a field. It tells us who are the voices, who's speaking, who's being heard, what are the trends, where are we going, where have we been? I came to this because I have a background in information science. So I've always been interested in information, again, how it's created, used, disseminated. And as I moved through my career and became more of a researcher, I wanted to dig into that and understand what is this corpus? What are we doing with it? How do we understand it? And then thinking more about, we've been doing this for a long time, for centuries, kind of using the journal article. How do we start to move things forward? What are other fields doing? What can we learn in medical education? So I think it's important. I think there's more of an appetite for this. I'm seeing journals publishing on it. We're seeing conference presentations. I think there's an interest and we finally have the tools to do some of the interesting work that we want to do to understand the literature or the research body. So what was it that led you to this particular project, trying to consider the voices of medical education scholarship as you described them in the title? Yeah, I do want to say this was a project that was many years in the making, and we actually started off probably two or three years ago now, and we bit off a smaller chunk of the landscape. We wanted to look at reviews, and so we identified a set of reviews, and we wanted to understand who was writing those, because for, for many people, when we talk about evidence-based education, the review is really the, one of the gold standards that you're looking for and you want to use. And so knowing those had a lot of power, I was interested in, well, who is speaking? Now, where are these voices coming from? What institutions, what countries? And then I was always interested in gender. I think since I've come into med ed, I've always been told that it's a female dominated field, but I kept thinking, well, do we know that? Like I look around and I see lots of different people, but I don't have any good evidence to tell me who is speaking in the field. Is it really a female dominated field or not? And so with that set, but the reviews, there were about a thousand of them, we dug in and we wanted to find out is it feasible for us to identify gender, country, 
And we did it on about a thousand articles, spent several months cleaning the data and creating pipelines that we could then use to move to this larger project. So we did about a thousand reviews. And then in this article, we did 30,000 articles. So we took the time first to really figure out how to how to create pipelines that we could use at scale. And then additionally, and this is one of the benefits of peer review, as we published articles about those reviews, we constantly got feedback about how did you pick your journal? How are you saying that this set of journals, at the time we used 14 journals based on the literature, we got a lot of pushback and I was like, okay, we need evidence to create kind of a field around medical education or field as defined by a set of journals. And so we actually published a paper in medical education that we attempted to delineate the field and create a seed set of journals. So we took another side route as we were working on this, created that seed set, which we call the Medical Education Journalist 24, which is 24 journals based on something called bibliometric coupling to come up with that list. And so that gave us the fodder. We now had the confidence that we had the pipelines, we had a journal set. And so we went ahead and we jumped into this. What was really interesting about this paper, so we were able to go out, we got the gender, the country, the institution, and we sent the paper off to peer review and we got some really insightful peer reviews. I have to say, you know, had to had to take a step back. There was a lot in those peer reviews, um, but they really challenged us. And what they pushed us to do or to think about was also the intersectionality of the data points that we had. And that was incredibly eye-opening to us. We had at first just reported gender institution and world region. And when we took that step back, based on the feedback from the peer reviewers, we really saw that there was stuff going on at the intersection of gender and world region. So that was really meaningful to us. And again, we were just putting our toes in the water with this paper, but that's kind of how we got there. It was a lot of years of building up to get here. And this, of course, isn't even the end. There was a long process to get there, but I feel really proud of this work. Mm. This was the piece that I stepped back and I said, I'm really happy our team is able to put this out into the community so we can start to have some important conversations and have an evidence base around that. This isn't the definitive evidence base, but it's a place to start. Like I said, I would always hear we're a female dominated field. And we're actually not. When we look at the literature, actually, there's more males across all authorship positions that are publishing in MedEd. Now that shifting, we're seeing the number of females rise. I would say we're seeing them rise except for in last authorship positions. And then again, when we look at the global South, there's really an absence of women publishing. It's about 3% in our literature base. So we are missing voices. And this just gives us that starting point to go ahead and talk about it. And also a little bit of a baseline. So many of the journals, so many of our medical education societies are putting initiatives into the field to try to improve the diversity of our scholarship. And this is just a place to say, okay, this is our starting point. Let's see how these are beginning to impact what we're doing. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a just for the sake of those who haven't seen the paper, it's a massive database you built, 37,000 plus articles, 62,000 plus authors. That intersectionality that you just alluded to comes out when you see the proportion of females drops as you move into Global South papers. Mm-hmm. Were you able to get anything out of those observations or some of the others that you made that provide some guidance as to where the particular barriers are or the historical trends? Do they lead you to any particular insight or perspective about what the field or the journals within it should be prioritizing? Yeah, that was actually interesting. We saw that the Global South overall is rising as are the number of females in Global South, but it's still very small compared to the Global North. In terms of journals, I think one of the more 
eye-opening things was that journals really should think about their scope and what they're focused on. So it's interesting. There were some journals that said, we are the journal for Germany, and they wanted to focus on Germany. So we wouldn't expect to see a lot of diversity. But then we had some other journals, which actually say in their journal scope note that they are international. And it was surprising with those journals, we would see similarly low levels of diversity. So I think it's important for journals to really think about their scope notes. Authors look at those. And if you're saying you want to be an inclusive community in your scope note, and your data should bear that out. So again, I would point to initiatives like at Teaching and Learning in Medicine. There's been a lot of work going on there. Anna Chincholo, the editor-in-chief, is doing a lot of work. She has a great task force. You've put together a task force as well. I think it's looking at these issues and bringing attention to them. feels like where we are right now. I do think we need to move forward. I don't feel that our data set gave us the suggestions. I think in our paper, we put forth some suggestions, but we wanted to be really upfront. We were a completely global North team. We were male-dominated. We really didn't want to be there giving a lot of suggestions. We wanted to offer this up as an opportunity for the community. It's not going to help us if a global North team comes out and says, Mm -hmm. you should do X, Y, and Z. That's exactly what we didn't want to do. Right. What are your current thoughts then in terms of what else we need to better understand without asking to give away necessarily what your next projects are, what we think the priorities are in terms of how we can better enable people from the global north and the global south to come up with strategies rather than you you giving them those strong recommendations? Yeah. Well, it struck me, I was reading one of your commentaries and I think you said something like, it's not all about the numbers. And very much what we've presented here are the numbers. We didn't really peel back the onion to understand why someone might publish in a particular journal. And some authors, I think Schiffer Ginsburg has taken a look at that qualitatively. But I think it's time to look at that again and begin to understand from more of a international standpoint. It's interesting when you think about the way in which people make decisions. When I think about how I make a decision or if I help to coach a student through making decision of where you're going to publish, There's a lot of factors that come into play, and some of them may be very practical. You may want to publish in your native language. You might want to publish in a journal that people in your community have access to. I might be from the Global South and publish in a prestigious subscription-based journal, and then the people in my local community may or may not be able to read it. And that can happen in the Global North as well. So I think it's more of peeling back the onion, having those conversations, beginning to really understand why people pick to publish in certain journals. And then going from that standpoint, because we just don't know, the barriers could be coming at the editorial level. The barriers could be coming, or it's not a barrier, they're very thoughtful decisions as to why someone may choose to publish in different journals. And that's also one limitation of the study. So we use the MEJ24, we felt like that was the best starting point, but that left out a lot of journals as well, even though it had international representation, it left out some of the journals that we're seeing emerging in the field that are more international. And the other thing I would say is this is the published landscape. There's also scholarship that's coming to us from many different areas. When we think about free and open access medical education, kind of things coming through with blogs and podcasts, I think of like Key Lime. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there beyond the published scholarship and ways in which we can get a diversity of voices. So I think that would be another recommendation is that we start to look more broadly and continue to look at the journal literature. And of course, that has implications for promotion and tenure. So we can't ignore that. 
But I also think we should be opening up to think about other forms of scholarship or even like what we're doing today, parallel forms of scholarship with our more traditional articles, I think can be very powerful in sending Mm -hmm. additional messages and giving just additional context to what we're doing in the articles. Because once it's in the articles, it looks really nice and polished. People probably don't think there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears in cleaning that massive data set. Lots of conference calls on you know, what decision are we going to make and how are we going to do it and defend it? So I really appreciate, again, the opportunity to talk more about the article. Well, you've just highlighted something I was talking about literally the hour before I got on the call with you is when new people come into the field, whether they're you know in our institutions and they're a trainee or they're coming from a part of the world where they just don't have as extensive a history of doing work in this area. There's a brand new language that they have to learn. And as you said, there's a guise that these projects emerged linearly. The papers all sound very straightforward and it creates a bit of imposter syndrome when you think about how could I ever possibly do that when in reality, the authors didn't really do it as cleanly as they make it sound either. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you about this and meta research more generally, because it feels to me like a way of helping people better understand what they're getting into when they want to do work in this area. And in addition to helping those of us who've been around for a while, better understand what we might do to support those individuals. How are you using this to bring people along? Not necessarily this paper, but your emphasis on meta-research more generally. Are there particular strategies that you've come up with that seem helpful to you to get people immersed into the field more readily? Yeah. So some of the things I've tried to do is publish on methods pieces. And part of that, how do you do this? What are some of the techniques? Then also trying to pull people into our field. Anton Ninkov, who's on this, he's, he's a professor of information science, bringing him in to understand some of that, even orienting him to medical education, trying to get folks that do bibliometrics and information science interested in our field and willing to share their expertise. And they're really excited to kind of play with our questions. So I think that's been some of it. I'll also speak to putting my editor hat on. So I'm the deputy editor-in-chief for Perspectives on Medical Education. We've really taken a stance with our journal that we're trying to constantly be looking at what's happening in the journal, looking at the back end, looking at our peer reviews, looking at you know the distribution of our reviewers and editors. So we're constantly trying to study our own journal. And we actually just moved platforms. And one of the reasons we decided to move platforms to more of an open source platform was that we would have immediate access to all of our data. We were going to own our data so that we could do this kind of study that we wanted to do. I will say it was actually quite challenging to get all of the data that we wanted because some of this data is very much proprietary. And we usually publish all of our data. In this case, we aren't able for the 37,000 articles to publish all of that data because it's owned by the Web of Science. So we had to be very thoughtful about that. So in my editor role, we're trying to do work within the journal. And we'll be talking to other journals that are thinking about doing similar things about studying. I'll also say we are starting an internship program at our journal. We actually adopted off what you do at MedEd. And we're looking to bring in a variety of international voices into that program as well. That's fantastic. So we'll direct people to the Perspectives website for information on how to get into that, I presume? Is yeah, that, that would be great. Yep. So we're lpmejournal.org. That's our new website. And we should have information about the internship soon. So please stay tuned. We'll be pushing that out. We're excited to get some interns that are excited to work alongside our editors. 
That's great. I look forward to seeing how that evolves and sharing some insights in both directions about what's worked for us and what we can learn from your experience. Thank you for the work. Thank you for shining a light on the field and really pushing all of us to be better. I'll just close by reminding anybody who's listening that the paper that we've been discussing or that simulated the conversation anyway uh, is titled The Voices of Medical Education Scholarship, Describing the Published Landscape. It's in the March 2023 issue of Medical Education. And Lauren Maggio is the first author whose voice you've been listening to. Uh, thanks again, Lauren. I look forward to seeing what comes next. Absolutely. Thank you, Kevin.